You're listening to Comedy Central. Experts claim there is nothing tougher than a diamond. But at Diamonds Direct, we beg to differ. Have you ever met a mother? Strong, radiant, timeless. This Mother's Day, give her the gift that meets her match. With diamond jewelry starting at $200, plus Diamonds Direct's exceptional quality and unbeatable everyday price, you're sure to give her a gift that wows this generation and the next to come. Experience the thrill of jewelry shopping done right at Diamonds Direct. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much for being here. This is one of those stories that genuinely hit me so hard because it feels like you have lived through some of the most seminal moments in American history, and you were also reporting on it. You, you worked for 50 years in this business. What do you think was the biggest change that you saw in your time in journalism as the first African-American woman working at the Washington Post? I think the biggest change was um, after the urban uprisings of the 60s, uh, when the Kerner Commission, which was a commission that was named by the president, said the media had in many ways contributed to the fact that the, that the urban riots occurred. And that was because... Wow they had not integrated their reporting and the editing staffs. And in many ways, they said, they were just showing us America only through white eyes. So I started at the Post in 1961. When I went back in 1972, it was a little different because there were more reporters of color, more females, but still it was very, white male dominated. You came into this world at a time when it was just something that did not happen. You walked into a newsroom where there were only two other reporters who were black. Mm -hmm. You were the first African-American woman in this space. Mm -hmm. And reading in the book, there's one of the, I mean, just the most harrowing passages where they they, they had a policy of not reporting when black people were murdered. Mm -hmm. One editor even called those cheap deaths that shouldn't be reported. Yeah. How do you even begin to work in that kind of environment? And did you help the editors understand why it was crucial to report all news? I tried to help them. And I think the way I began working in that environment is because uh, Dr. Martin Luther King was beginning to say to young black people, go into white corporations and excel. So it felt like I was almost part of the freedom movement uh, by going and becoming the first African-American woman at the Washington Post. I didn't think I was a trailblazer at that point. I just was doing a job that I loved. Right. I had had uh, four years in the black press, and the black press has been very important in America, uh, both in terms of reporting on civil rights, but in going, going places where white reporters wouldn't go, right. where white newspapers wouldn't go. So that uh, experience also helped to prepare me for my work at the Washington Post. Uh, One of the first stories that I remember a lot was when I went to the University of Mississippi uh, 
as part of the team from the Post to cover the integration of Ole Miss. And that was the most horrendous thing you can imagine because Mississippi was one of those places where uh, it was a lynching state. Right. Uh, it was the heart of segregation and the university was like this bastion of white supremacy. So it was uh, chaotic on the campus. But what uh, hurt in addition was that I had no place that I could get a room because they didn't have hotels for black people. So I slept in a black funeral home. And, uh, in a funeral home? Yeah. I slept with the dead, Trevor. This is so insane that you, you have lived through that time. It, I've, I, I'm honestly fascinated to know, in that time when this was happening, were you optimistic? Did you think that you would see America change? Or, or was the resistance to integration so strong that you thought it would last forever? The integration was so strong that I never thought I would see a black president. Wow. That was uh, a huge um, step forward right. in many ways. Uh, but of course, with America, it can have, be liberal and then it can swing to conservatism and you see what we have now. I see what we have now. <laughs> I do indeed. <laughs> <laughs> you, you reported on, on, on so many stories and your inclusion in the newsroom was powerful because it really felt, felt like when you read the book, you lived through two of really the most important eras in American history, in modern history, definitely. And that was women's movement for equal rights and black people's movements for civil rights. Mm -hmm. Which of the two did you feel like had more momentum when you were in them? Did you feel like, oh, this is going to happen or this one won't? Or did it feel like both were just moving forward? Uh, it felt that the, like the freedom riders and the freedom, I call the whole civil rights movement, the freedom movement. Yes. Uh, it felt like it was going to open doors for so many other people. Right. Because after the civil rights movement, after the black power era, that's when Gloria Steinem wrote her article that said, after black power, women power. Right. And so after the women power, it's, it's the blacks who were the pioneering minority. And so after women power, then you had the uh, oppression against gay people right. being, being uh, really looked at and, and studied and acknowledged. Then you had the uh, oppression against the disabled. So it's many ways, it's the black movement, I think that was the most important movement because all people all over the world were singing, we shall overcome. And you know, in right. China and all around the world, uh, people who had been oppressed were saying, if that happened in America, you know, why can't it happen here? It's so powerful when you, you speak about how when you first got to the Post, your mission was not to be a reporter that focused on black issues, but just a reporter who excelled. You didn't want to be pigeonholed mm -hmm. as a black reporter. But then you came to realize that it was crucial for you to take up that mantle and report on black issues. Why do you think it's so important for mainstream media to look more like actual America and not just have the voice of predominantly white men? Yeah. It's because uh, you can't really talk about a community uh, that you don't in some way represent, uh, that you don't in some way know, that you don't in some way have more than a stereotyped uh, notion mm -hmm. of what it's all about. And because uh, with white supremacy in America, that whole narrative has also been 
accompanied by an anti-black narrative. Right. And very often, and that's been since the beginning. This is 2019. We African Americans or black people have been in America 400 years. We were here a year before the Mayflower. But, you know, two and a half centuries of that was the era of slavery. Right. And then at the era of, of Jim Crow. So, uh, or segregation in yes, the South. Yes, yes. Yeah. So the whole feeling that um, this is, uh, this whole anti black narrative that has been a part of the DNA almost of right. America as much as white supremacy. Uh, that has, has not really been acknowledged. Uh, it's been kind of glossed over, and you pay attention to have, you know, the, the violence that violence gets. Yes. But in terms of what motivated that, and a lot of it is about poverty. You know, poverty is very violent. And, and as you were saying in the segment with the billionaires, you know, it's very real mm -hmm. what's happening in this country. And it's been happening for a while. 50 years of writing, 50 years of finding ways to report stories even in spaces where you weren't allowed. I mean, one of the, the most shocking and I find funny at the same time stories is when you talked about how when you and yourself and colleagues would go to marches, you would have to disguise yourselves because you couldn't be journalists in public as black people. You would dress up as, as clergy, you dress up as priests and, and, and so forth and nuns and, and you would hide typewriters under your clothing, which I didn't even know how they fit. Um, <laughs> but, but, but when you look at America today, how do you find that balance for yourself of, of both where America has come from and where America still needs to go? Okay, first I should say that those reporters uh, who uh, wrapped their old royal typewriters about this in old clothes right. when they went to the South because they didn't want the white sheriffs to arrest them. Wow. And so they, they would also disguise themselves as ministers and they'd carry Bibles under their arms. And uh, so that was a way of trying to get to the story and knowing that they couldn't go as reporters. But where I see things today, uh, I think it's a time when uh, media is more important than ever. Uh, it, was, it was very difficult when the president uh, started talking about fake news. Mm -hmm. uh, it was very difficult because, you know, those of us who came up in the, in the legacy media, we knew about all of the issues of ethics that we had to to uh, adhere to in mm -hmm. order to be hired by the Washington Post and in order to work there. Uh, we knew that we didn't take gifts from anybody. Uh, we knew that we had to always pay our own way. Um, uh, we knew that we had studied in colleges and universities. And so to have the, the, our whole process dismissed as fake news uh, was not only uh, detrimental to the U.S., but it was detrimental internationally because um, whatever we say about the faults of America, it still has been the bastion of democracy. And so when you have something as, as crucial, you know, as freedom of the press right. being de denigrated by the top official of the land, it has a very destabilizing effect uh, in the whole world. I could genuinely talk to you for hours, but luckily I have the book to keep me company. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the show. It's an Thank honor you meeting so you. Much. Thank you so much. Trailblazer is available now. A truly fascinating story. Dorothy Butler-Gilliam, everybody. 
The Daily Show with Trevor Noah, Ears Edition. Watch The Daily Show weeknights at 11, 10 Central on Comedy Central and the Comedy Central app. Watch full episodes and videos at thedailyshow.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And subscribe to The Daily Show on YouTube for exclusive content and more. In the 90s, New York detective Louis Scarcella locked up the worst criminals. Putting bad guys away. There's no feeling like it. Then jailhouse lawyers took aim, led by Derek Hamilton. Scarcella took me to the precinct and lied. 20 men eventually walked free. Now, in the Burden podcast, after a decade of silence, Louis Scarcella finally tells his story. And so does Derek Hamilton. Listen to The Burden on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Hargan women seem to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God, this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings early and ad-free starting May 1st with a 48 Hours Plus subscription on Apple Podcasts. This has been a Comedy Central podcast.